Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self-Enlightened. <coughs> So, um, what, I, what I hope to do tonight is just to just to explain the importance of the body in the Buddhist teaching, and to put it in context of the different exercises that we're doing. Hmm? So, the idea of this particular course was to uh, give various exercises to show the extent of, of uh, Buddhist practice. Most people who come into at least this school just want the meditation, you know, the vipassana, <laughs> and uh, that's fine. Um, and most people these days anyway want to collect their own little spiritual portfolio, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and, and gather their own little uh, direction in the spiritual life. So uh, these exercises may be of use to you in, in the long term, uh, but at least you know, you know of them. So we've done the, the body exercise about um, you know, how to develop a good attitude towards the body, but also how to undermine a certain wrong relationship to the body. And uh, this morning we did the metta, which is about developing the heart. Uh, we didn't do the forgiveness, which I'll do tomorrow, which is the other side of it. <coughs> and of course we did vipassana. And part of that uh, vipassana practice was also uh, recognizing that uh, you have to establish a sort of basic platform which includes these qualities of not just an awakenedness and awareness, but uh, this attitude of wanting to know, um, uh, uh, this curiosity, uh, based on equanimity. So this is a very important attitude. In fact, uh, you could say it's the greatest virtue in the Buddhist teachings, because what equanimity does is it uh, it puts you in a position of openness and doesn't let you get caught up in things, see? So, <coughs> uh, we were talking about the, the virtues of, of love and compassion. So it stops you sort of slipping into the error of attachment and grief and all that, you see. And in terms of the Buddhist, pr in terms of insight, it stops you from only, only seeing what you want to see, from your own conceptual ideas of what that is, see? In a sense, you have to drop all that. Uh, you have to drop uh, history, basically. So tonight, um, I just wanted to centre on this business of um, of the body, but looking at it also from uh, the Buddha's own particular teaching around suffering. So, uh, just a potted history of the Buddha's own life. Um, something happened in his twenties, mid twenties, uh, which we we would call a sort of an identity crisis. Um, and it comes out in a little story about him going out on his hunting trips and whatnot, and coming across these four figures, uh, a very sick person, very elderly person, uh, uh, a, a corpse, and then this ascetic sitting under a tree. So these, were, these are now known as the messengers from the gods that awoke him to his path. Uh, but basically, it was him coming to terms with the fact that youth was disappearing and ahead of him looked pretty miserable. And 
uh, in those days, the idea of rebirth, the idea of being reincarnated, is not quite the same as rebirth, but the idea of an ongoing uh, uh, process was was looked upon as horrific. Everybody's trying to get out of that. I mean, <coughs> life wasn't so easy, um, especially depending on which caste you were born in, although the castes at that time weren't so, so, so set, you could move. Hmm? Uh, but the idea that you have to come back and do the same thing over and over again without any escape uh, presented uh, those times with their, with their real existential suffering. So how do you get out of that? Hmm? And uh, there were various teachers at that time. Some of them, we, some of them were just basic uh, materialists. You, there wasn't such a thing as rebirth. You basically died and that was the end of that. See? And the idea was you got the best out of life that you could, and, um, and that's all you could do, really. So their idea of a good life was to get yourself as happy as you can, um, mainly through, through the sensual delights of life, and, uh, and that was it. And then you, then you disappeared. There were others who had the idea, which is very close to our uh, Western idea of a, of a, of a soul or a self, uh, which is everlasting, and uh, so, for instance, uh, a contemporary teacher of the of the Buddha was the Jain founder, the Nigantha. So they seem to have had a very sort of concrete idea of what karma was. In other words, the consequence of your actions, your ethical actions. It was almost uh, something material that got stuck on the soul, and the idea was that you. Um, went through mortification exercises so that this stuff fell off and then the soul could rise to its uh, to a different place um, and that's why they and, and their understanding was that whatever you did whether you meant it or not if it was if it wasn't good you got the karmic result so that's why you see uh, you know Jane monks going around sweeping the floor in front of them you know if they stand they stand on an ant whether they meant to or not is immaterial. They've killed that life and therefore there's a consequence. So uh, there was that teaching of uh, self-mortifications, of uh, letting go of the appetites of the body. And that was mainly uh, around sex, but a lot of it was around food. And the Buddha seems to practice this for quite some years, to the point where he said he could hold his spine through his stomach. That's a bit, <laughs> a bit extreme. And uh, at some point he gave up on that. Somehow that didn't answer his questions. So, <clears throat> having left the, uh, having left his um, lay life, where he was married, and he, uh, as the story goes, he'd uh, he'd just had a child born, a, a little boy. He was a member of the ruling caste. His father was the local headman, you could say, <clears throat> and they all came under the local king, Kosala. So this was also a new development of the time, a movement away from pastoral communities uh, that lived in little groups to a more centralised form of government under a monarch. And it was creating all sorts of psychological problems and wars and disputes. And there was a new, a new class began to arise, the merchant class. And in those, well, I mean, for us it's hardly turbulent, but for them it was terribly turbulent, <laughs> that sort of change in their society, uh, I think created a certain dislocation, a certain feeling of uh, alienation maybe. And so lots of uh, men mainly left to live this life of the Samana, 
of the uh, the wandering um, ascetic. Hmm? So uh, when the Buddha um, leaves home, the first thing he does is to go to a particular teachers who are going to teach him how to create happiness, and that's through these jhanic states, the absorption states. All religions have this. You, just by saying a mantra or a prayer with intent, slowly but surely the heart lifts and you enter into your own internal space which can be uh, ecstatic, peaceful, calm. So when we're doing the metta this morning, just by getting to that point of repeating may all beings be happy, may all beings be happy, see, very slowly you, you begin to lift yourself, you see. Um, the problem with that was that when you, when when he came out of that mental state, uh, he was back to being, you know, depressed and anxious. Siddhartha Gautama. So it didn't really answer his questions, even though his teachers uh, thought him to be uh, an adept enough to actually take on the teaching. Then uh, he tries these mortification exercises, and um, he leaves that too because he, he just feels he's getting nowhere with it. So at that point, um, he, he's uh, in, in a state of desperation, can we say. He's in a state of despair because he's searched for what the society has to give him and nothing, nothing's come of it. So we can only presume that he's in this, he's in this position of despair. And um, so the story goes. Uh, I'm presuming one or two of you haven't heard these little stories, correct? Yeah. <laughs> There's a woman called Sujata comes along, which means well-born. And she is carrying some rice pudding or rice cakes, I prefer to think of it as rice pudding, uh, to the local god, see, to make an offering to the local god. And seeing this uh, poor wretch thinks, well, he probably needs it more than his god. So uh, he partakes of this, uh, he starts eating this rice pudding and it sort of it revives him. Well, you know the power of rice pudding. So this point, he remembers something from childhood. And this is really uh, a core point in his progress. He remembers watching his father doing a ploughing ceremony. Now, he's as concentrated as a little child. Uh, we can think of him somewhere between six and eight, six and nine, that sort of age. I would say probably below seven. But anyway, he's concentrating on his father. So his level of concentration is acute. He's, he's, he's and he's really interested. He wants to know what, what his dad's doing. And... Um, he realizes that there's a quality in that which is different from all the stuff that he's been practicing before. Before, he's been trying to get happiness, trying to attain happiness. Uh, what this insight into this child does is it turns the process around for him to ask, well, what's the cause of suffering in the first place? And it's with that sort of inspiration that he goes and sits under what we call the Bodhi tree. It's a religious fig tree. So he, he goes there uh, with a completely different intent. So now the intent isn't uh, how am I going to make myself happy, but how do I create suffering? And who creates the suffering? And why I create the suffering? Hmm? And so uh, he determines, it's called the great determination, uh, not to rise from the, from the tree until he's cracked it or he drops dead. Well, yeah, as you know, lucky for him and, and lucky for us too, he sort of cracks the problem. And he realizes that um, uh, the problem of, of suffering uh, is, is, first of all, at a psychological level that we call desire. It's, it's actually a bad translation, desire, but we'll come to that in a minute. And at a deeper level, uh, something goes wrong 
something there's a mistaken identity as to who as to who we are or what we are so one of the core words in the teaching is this word dukkha which uh, simply means hard to bear but it in, but it, it it encaptures all what we would call a suffering from the deepest angst and and horror and despair and all that to the to the to the silliest of irritations and thirsts see it's the whole gamut of human suffering dukkha hard to bear and um, he makes a distinction between that dukkha and uh, the suffering that comes from the body which is natural to the body so the first type of suffering is called dukkha dukkata in other words the suffering of suffering and what he's asking us to do is to separate out the physical pain which comes from the body itself and how we make a problem of it how we turn it into actually some real heavy suffering so that's your that's your first shall we say premise and when he's pushed when he's pushed to uh, uh, you know like what does he teach because uh, he won't go anywhere near metaphysics right there's no god there's no reason why we suffer in any ultimate uh, comp- there's no reason for us being here he doesn't he doesn't enter into any of those metaphysical areas uh, simply because you can't prove it he doesn't want to get into arguments see? in those days it was seen the uh, one of the big entertainments was to turn up at a park on the full moon where all these ascetics would come and have a real old ding-dong battle as to who was right and who was wrong <laughs> so he wouldn't he wouldn't enter into those sorts of discussion and um, he, comp- he, he constantly drew drew his whole teaching down to what in the Pali language that's the language he spoke uh, is just three words dukkha dukkha niroda which translates as unsatisfactoriness suffering and the end of it that's all he's concerned with of course it's in that investigation that you come to realize that in fact there's you know there's more to us than what actually meets the eye mm. so um, this suffering uh, this suffering is caused by um, this desire now when he talks about desire and we'll go into it more deeply during the week he's really talking about uh, forming a relationship to which I mentioned uh, today about a sort of psychological dependency so that our happiness is dependent on something see and when when it's when it's like that what happens is uh, when that which you're dependent on disappears then you know you're suffering on the side of suffering itself if we presume the body will always be healthy when it falls ill then there's a lot of suffering so a lot of our exercises a lot of the exercises that he gives are just a constant reminder of the way things really are which undermines at least the um, the strength of suffering that can happen when somebody uh, you know goes when somebody's taken by surprise when somebody's in a state of shock I don't know whether you know the uh, the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did you come across that it's a book called Death and Dying and she's one of the early um, investigators to what happens psychologically when you die she's um, she was a doctor and she spent her time with in um, hospices and when you're told that you know you've only got six weeks uh, you can imagine it is a bit of a shock and that that uh, 
uh, that shock you see is I mean why is it there everybody knows they're going to die everybody knows that every, everything dies in the end um, but somehow when we're told that it's our turn it, it's a real thump you see and more so when we've never when we've never considered it so uh, the Buddha talks about four types of people They're those who wake up to the reality of life when uh, you know when they hear even somebody um, somebody hardly famous has died and then there are those who wake up when somebody famous dies there's those who don't wake up until somebody close to them dies and then there's the unfortunate who don't wake up until it's their turn to die so you don't want to get to the point where <laughs> you're in a state of terminal shock uh, when the doctor tells you you've got so long to live so Part of this, uh, part of the Buddha's teaching is to bring us always down to this real base. Now, when you when you come down to this base, as you approach it like this, you think, well, that's really gloomy. I mean, you know, what do I want to think about <coughs> death and dying all the time? You know. But what it does is, it uh, it takes away the fear, it takes away the anxiety, and in so doing, you live more fully in the present moment. That's what it does. Remember that a lot of our actions are an escape from suffering. So as soon as the as soon as boredom comes, you're looking for something else to do. As soon as uh, some pain comes, you're looking to get rid of it. There's always this flight from from suffering. Always a flight from what is painful. A flight from death. You see. So it's always behind you. See. And it's only when you bring it in front of you and you accept it as it is that of course all that anxiety and fear and rush and bother uh, begins to disappear, begins to fade away and that means that all your energy now is in being in the present moment and living fully that's the, that's the, uh, uh, the consequence of these sorts of contemplations so what I'd like to do is just to uh, go through the importance of that in his discourse on uh, how to establish this mindfulness. Now this particular discourse was delivered to people called the Kurus in Kurusadhamma, which is seemingly close to modern Delhi, or it was close to modern Delhi. And uh, the important thing about this discourse, which is the jewel of the collection, it's, it's considered the jewel, I mean there are about 16 collections of these talks, <laughs> they lived a long time, <laughs> but uh, this is considered the jewel because here he encapsulates all his teachings, his, uh, his practical teachings on how to become liberated from suffering. And the important thing uh, for people to understand about this is that this is delivered to ordinary people in a small town. Right? Well, a lot of the, most of these discourses are delivered to monks, because that's whom he's talking to most of the time. And as he's traveling around and staying here and there, he's giving talks and he's, he's in community, he, he, uh, He's having discussions with kings and with local uh, people and he'd obviously been to this place and he'd uh, returned to find that actually they were following his teachings. He says there was no well talk, no gossip. <laughs> and, so, and so he really sits down and he, he tries to give them this teaching and it's called the direct path. So the, the two-way path is to develop this very strong concentration which we call samatha and um, that can take time and you've got to take time off work and you've got to sit there and sort of develop it 
And when it's developed, then you would turn that uh, very clear concentration onto investigating. But uh, in this discourse, he points out that that's not actually necessary. What is necessary is to get these uh, qualities, these factors of enlightenment, and uh, to just to begin to investigate things as, as we experience them. So the first part is the body. Now, this mindfulness of breathing, see? Um, well, actually, excuse me, the first part is how he abides. He abides um, uh, with his body upright, and his uh, an awareness set in front of him, right? So the Buddha is very, very clear about the importance of posture. Mm? And there are other scriptures, there are other discourses in which, uh, in which that's gone into in more detail. So the first thing is that the body itself is uh, an expression of your attitude and your state of mind. Now, it's pretty obvious, really, when you see people in the street you know, looking pretty miserable. They don't, they don't walk around as though they're in charge of the world. They're all crunched up and bent over. So as soon as you straighten the body up, you see, uh, and as soon as you, you lift the spine, you're drawing energy up the body. Huh? And this energy that's coming up, uh, this, is, this is the same as the, uh, as, the, as the chi or the ki. So as soon as you sit up, you see, and lift up to the top of the head, um, there's not only the physical energy of keeping your body upright, there is this mental energy coming up. And when that mental energy comes up, it'll begin to it'll begin to shake, shall we say, those parts of the body that are holding uh, turbulence, that are holding uh, little little uh, pockets of turbulence that are being held there. And that's where you get this physical pain come through the body. Yeah? So the posture is uh, is really of, of importance, and the part of the posture that's important is the spine. So it doesn't matter really what you do with your legs, you can take them off if you want. It's a case of, of actually lifting up through the top of the spine, uh, top of the head, and maintaining that posture. So in your meditation, if you find yourself, you know, sort of crunching in onto yourself, so you just stop and just say lifting, lifting, bring yourself back up. Okay. And. Um, he talks about putting away covetousness and grief for the world. So, in other words, when you sit in meditation, you're putting aside all your desires about life and what you want and all your plans, and you're putting aside all your griefs, see? In other words, you're trying to bring yourself into the present moment, not allowing the past or the future to cramp this present moment as it is. And we do that by simply stopping the thought. And the thought stops when you give the mind something else to think. And that's the purpose of these noting words. I think last night I pointed up there to the teacher, the Mahasi, and the curtain was over it. Is that right? <laughs> I presume you could imagine it. Anyway, that's, <laughs> that's the Mahasi. The Mahasi Saido. So um, here, a meditator... A meditator goes, uh, I mean, obviously, we're, we're talking about a different time, goes to a forest, the root of a tree, an empty hut, sits down, having folded the legs cross, uh, crosswise, set the body erect and establish mindfulness before him. And ever mindfully breathes in, mindfully breathes out. And the first point is to get in touch with the actual feeling of the breath. So the meditator knows the breath is long or the breath is short. So it's a very, it's, a, it's sort of, you know, getting in touch with the body, getting in touch with the body 
getting in touch with feeling caused by the body, sensations caused by the body. And then uh, once that's established, uh, breathing in, experiencing the whole body, breathing in, experiencing the whole, uh, ex ex sorry, um, breathing out, experiencing the whole body. And what's meant there is that by this time, as you settle in on the breath, you're staying with the whole flow of the breath. Your mind's not coming off it. Hmm? So uh, don't be disappointed if the mind keeps wandering away because that's the practice. You wake up, you know what's doing, you come back to the breath. But this process of settling on the breath, you see, is bringing about that silence in the mind. Silence in the mind, calmness of the heart. So you've got to start somewhere and the breath helps you to do that. So it's a very, sometimes you have to spend just a bit of time, you know, allowing the breath to silence the mind, allowing the breath to calm the heart. See? If you try and do it, if you try and stop thinking, try and stop feeling agitated, then you're in conflict with your mind, you're in conflict with your heart, and that produces even more turbulence. So it's a case of being very calm, very peaceful, just allowing things to happen no matter how long it takes. Hmm? And then when, when your mind is fairly steady on the breath, you see, uh, you train it, you train it to be uh, to be like that, and you train it in order to tranquilize. Which is a funny word; it's translated as the the bodily formation and tranquilize. Um, and as you breathe out, you tranquilize the body formation. So, in other words, you're just getting calmer. You're getting calmer. And um, the important thing to recognize here is that the body affects the mind. Now we know that if if you feel ill, then you feel down. You feel depressed about it. And if, you, if your body feels good, then it tends to lift you up. You know, that's why you, know, you go for a run and you feel good about it. So it's a case of recognizing that, recognizing that the breath, which is something that's happening, happening automatically, has the power of bringing the mind to silence and the heart to, to, to calmness. Okay? And it all rests upon the body being still. Okay? So there's the complete silence, you see, you might say. It's the stillness of the body calmness of the heart, silence of the mind. And um, in a sense, just because you've, you've sort of gathered that within the beginnings of your meditation, doesn't mean to say that it's going to stay there. So every time you get lost within your sitting, you always begin again, just begin again, you see. Um, you might find that a little disappointing because um, I think we come to the meditation thinking, well, you know, I'm doing everything right so the mind should stop. But when you think that from the time you get up in your ordinary daily life, from the time you wake up to the time you fall asleep, does the mind ever stop? In fact, have you experienced the mind not thinking, in a state of no thought? See? So, uh, when you come and sit in a meditation center and you think, well now I'm just going to sit in complete silence, but it just doesn't happen. So, part of the training, part of the, of the process, the work, you might say, is to allow these things to happen. So remember, you're not trying to make the mind be silent. You're not trying to make the heart be calm. You're just using an object, a neutral object, the rising and falling of the breath, to bring about those qualities, just because the breath itself is calming. See? And as the calming, as the calming comes, the breath gets finer and finer. You see? And that's a sign to you that the concentration is growing. The breath gets finer, more shallow, <coughs> uh, 
Now, um, it's not just that the body itself offers us, um, you know, these, this quality of suffering, this quality of unsatisfaction, this quality of pain. The body offers us pain, excuse me. It's not just that the body uh, offers us pain so that we can investigate what our relationship is to pain, which is the real suffering. Uh, it also offers us an insight into, a deeper insight into this quality of impermanence. Now, what we all want is something that's permanent and completely reliable. So, all the Buddha is saying, well, where is it? Where is this permanency? Where is there, where is there in this phenomenal world that you're going to find something reliable? So, here you have the breath, you see. Now, if it were to stop, then I presume we'd panic. <laughs> so, but but we're, we we presume it's going to keep going. You presume it's going to keep going. Now, what we have to recognize is that every breath is a new breath. Right? It's not the same old breath repeating itself. This is a completely new moment. And what it brings us into, uh, into an understanding that every moment is a rising and passing away. A rising and passing away. And when we see that in the breath, you see, so when something arises, we, we, we often attach the word new to it. See? So with the word new, there always comes this lovely feeling, something new, a new song, a new product, you know, um, a new iPad, whatever it is, you see. And the, the word new tends to be good. You don't, you, don't, you don't usually use the word new when something's awful. You don't say it's of a new, revo a new uh, revolution in the Arab countries. You don't say it's new. <laughs> so, uh, as the breath starts, it's 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 the coming into life. It's the it's the movement up. You see, and it brings you up. You see, then it stops, and there's a moment when it stops, and then it comes down. You see, and then it finishes. Rising, falling, rising, falling, birth and death. So it's actually contacting you with something very uh, obvious about life, but something that in our deepest recesses we don't fully accept. We don't fully accept that actually this me that I talk about is arising and passing away. My sense of me is virtually continuous from the time I get up. If you say, if you ask yourself, well, you know, do I have a sense of me, me-ness, you know? It's always there, isn't it? That never disappears, does it? There's always me thinking. When I become aware of me, that is. See? It never disappears. And it always seems to be static. It always seems to be uh, immovable. It always seems to be above what I'm actually experiencing. See? So, by seeing this impermanence, we're actually asking, well, how permanent is that sense of me? Uh, one of the... Uh, one of the benefits of seeing impermanence is, of course, uh, an unreliability is that you're much more easy about letting things go. Much more easy about just just allowing things to happen, letting it go, then the next moment arises. So there's always going to be another moment, another moment. And the, the final thing is this business of not-self. So in watching the breath, especially as something automatic, uh, we begin to realize it doesn't need me. The body breathes. Okay? The body breathes. And that's when you begin to sort of look into the body and you find actually that what we actually know of the body is very superficial. Uh, for instance, 
<coughs> I mean, so I'm told, I've never experienced it. Uh, the marrow of our bones is actually manufacturing red, red blood corpuscles. Is correct, huh? And these red blood corpuscles are passing through the bone into the blood. Now, has anybody actually experienced that? And when you breathe, uh, they tell us that oxygen is being taken, that carbon dioxide is taken out, and oxygen is taken in. Have you ever experienced that? You experience the breath, but you haven't a clue what's going on in the body. There are trillions of cells. I mean, it's amazing when you look into these biology books. Trillions of cells. And they're all reproducing themselves. <laughs> and I have nothing to do with it. I have nothing to do with it at all. There's a whole business going on of purifying the blood through the kidneys. Uh, and it's just not under my control. I haven't a clue what my liver is doing. But I do know when, it's, when it hurts. <laughs> and my brain, I mean, looking at uh, brain science, I mean, it's just fascinating what, the, what we've come to learn about the brain. And uh, just the fact that our moods can be moved around by different sorts of chemicals. So... Uh, when you look when you look into your body like that and you you get the feeling that you're an alien within this within this frame so it's a bit like uh, driving a car when you're driving a car and you're actually um, absorbed in the driving when there's when you are just driving huh, you become the car you are the car you and the car are one see then of course it breaks down and suddenly the car is something else and then you realize that, well, you're not the car, you're in the car, but you're not the car. <laughs> so, so it's the same with this body, you see. You're, there, there's something in the body, but it isn't the body at all, because it doesn't have this control. So there's the Buddha's explanation of trying to define the self. Um, if it was really me, I would be in control, complete control of the body. Yeah? If it was me. But because it's not me, I find I'm not in control. And the more I... Uh, get into that the more frightening it can be actually and especially when uh, I realize I don't have any control at all over the aging process uh, and over it dying we don't know the hour of the day unless of course I take my own life so um, watching the breath you see as an automatic thing as something which is happening by itself uh, watching it appearing and disappearing you see and watching my relationship to it you see finding it boring for instance see? all that all that whole process of liberating ourselves from from this dukkha from this from this existential suffering it can all be done just watching the breath see? that's how powerful that practice is once you turn the investigative eye upon it now that's not the only thing that he uh, <coughs> he suggests of course this all this business can be done in in the four classic postures of sitting, walking, lying down, and standing. Yeah? So it doesn't matter where you are, you can always practice. You can always do this practice. But now we've got this business of uh, what you, what uh, of, of mindfulness. Um, in in the Pali language, only one word. It's sati. That's why I call this place sati panya because that's the Buddha mind, intuitive awareness or awareness and intuitive intelligence even though 
even though we, we think it's two things being aware and having this intuitive faculty is actually uh, they're two sides of the same coin and we get it in, we get it in a phrase such as first you look and then you see see so the awareness is is the absorption is the openness and the intelligence is the understanding Now, uh, so in full awareness, I mean, is here it's been retranslated as if he was talking to monastics. But um, when flexing and extending limbs, he acts in full awareness when wearing when wearing his robes. So in other words, when when you when when you're putting on, taking off your clothes, uh, when you're eating, full awareness when you're drinking, consuming food and tasting, full awareness when you're defecating and urinating. See, instead of reading a magazine, you're supposed to be aware of everything. And uh, one of the things that um, uh, Brian was pointing out was this business of gratitude, you see. So, have you ever thanked your bowels for getting rid of that stuff? See? <laughs> that's, your, that's your relationship to your bowels, you see. Instead of seeing something absolutely awfully disgusting, you have to thank them and say, thank you so much for getting rid of all that stuff. See? Same, with, same with your bladder. See? Thank you so much for getting rid of that stuff. So, you're, you're, you're actually creating a well-being towards the body by just this by just activating that attitude of, of, of gratefulness thankfulness and he has this full awareness when he's walking standing sitting falling asleep see and waking up if you go to sleep with a firm determination to that awareness awareness sparks awake upon the arising of that uh, out of sleep you see you might even catch whether you wake up on the in-breath or the out-breath. Have a go. And aware when you're talking and keeping silent. See, So awareness is just that sense of presence uh, with whatever you're doing. Awareness can only be in the present moment. See? So it's always being with exactly what you're doing. So whatever your body's doing, your mind is there. And if your mind is doing, you're there with the mind. So the mind is never allowed to wander and just go off on its own little trips. Now the other thing that we did was the foulness of the body parts. So this is right here in the foundations of mindfulness. See? <laughs> and he's got, he's got a huge list of things that, we, that we're meant to contemplate. So not only just simple things like uh, hairs on the head and hairs on the body, skin, bone marrow, kidneys... Uh, spleen, lungs, large intestines, you know, and stomach, feces, bowel, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, spittle, snot, oil, the joints, and urine. So when <laughs> when you make a list of all these things, the body, you can come out feeling pretty disgusted. But the whole point is to get in touch with that relationship we have and to begin to transform it into its opposite, which is thankfulness, which is uh, a non and non-disgust. This is the way the body is. Hmm? There's a, a case <clears throat> in the scriptures where uh, some monastics have been contemplating uh, in the in the forests, and they've been doing specifically this exercise. And the exercise here is to uh, um, not to um, not to that that our happiness is not dependent on the body. See, that's, that's. So one contemplates these sorts of things. The problem with doing it in a, a non-balanced way is that is that you end up, in a sense, being 
disgusted with your body if you if you keep doing this you see so you're supposed to do the opposite as well which is this thankfulness of the body uh, this um, uh, ability to draw metta into the body you see and when he sees this uh, these group of monastics coming out he he sees that they've done this practice very well but what's lacking is this loving kindness so he gives them the practice of loving kindness and all of them liberate themselves and that's a story they all liberate themselves from suffering just with this exercise combined with loving kindness then there's a, a deeper sort of ex experience about the body which is the way the mind contacts the body at its base before it turns it into concepts and and perceptions so now we did a part of that when we we're doing the standing meditation when I asked you to feel uh, the base of your foot and to really get into the soles of your feet and what you were actually feeling uh, <coughs> you discern two types of feelings which is the pressure and the and the heat those are those are two the other one of course is movement so there's your, your third basic uh, um, sense and the fourth one is a sense of liquidity or cohesiveness or stickiness something that um, uh, and, and elasticity sometimes you can feel that on the breath it's like an expand like an, an accordion sort of expanding and then contracting now in um, in uh, the Buddha's psychology that's the point of contact between the body and the mind uh, the mind can only perceive uh, these four things and it's from these four things that it creates its, perce its percepts so the eye for instance would be seen as a fire element heat yeah? light and it's from these little pixels that the mind actually takes this in and begins to create a picture so we know for instance that when somebody's looking at a picture the eye is moving around all over it but that's not what you're aware of what you're aware of is the whole picture that whole picture is being manufactured inwardly and all the eye is picking up at that sense base are these little pixels when you put your attention on the ear you actually hear uh, recognizable sounds such as the you know, little tweets of birds but actually in if your meditation is, is clear enough the initial perception isn't a sound at all it's just pressure it's like a drum and all you experience are drums and it's from there from that basic pressure which is the the earth element as it's put in in a more metaphorical language uh, that the that the mind takes it in and begins to create an image which is then recognized and then understood so that's a whole process that's going on See? so um, <clears throat> these uh, these four elements in Buddhist psychology are the basic perceptual base of the mind touching matter that doesn't mean to say they exist in matter itself it's the way the mind experiences matter it either experiences it as some sort of pressure or lack of pressure some sort of heat or lack of it some sort of movement or lack of it stillness and some sort of cohesion elasticity and it's just from these basic percepts that we create this world around us 
And the, uh, <coughs> the final thing uh, in this section on the body are what's known as the nine charnel ground contemplations. So in those days, they didn't bother to bury bodies as such, they offered the body, which after all is just meat and bones, uh, to nature. And they were wrapped in white cloth and ceremoniously put in the charnel grounds, where vultures, foxes, wolves, lions, did they have lions in India? Maybe. <laughs> Tigers. Uh, would, feed, would, feed, would feed off them. And um, uh, one of the contemplations was to sit and watch a body slowly corrupt away, you see. So he's obviously done it himself because uh, there are, I think, 11, 11 or more, 11, I think, uh, proce parts of the process. So sees a corpse thrown aside on the charnel ground, devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, various types of worms. And then he sees a corpse on the ground, a skeleton with flesh and blood, and a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood, held together by sinews, and a skeleton without flesh and blood, held together without, with sinews, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, here a foot bone. See? And all the while, the meditator is saying, as this body is, so is mine. As this body is, so is mine. So that's a pretty heavy meditation, that one is. You know, if you can find a body, I'll go. <laughs> these days, these days you can't do that sort of thing. It's funny because as a monastic, if you go to the east, uh, I'm thinking of Thailand mainly uh, and Sri Lanka, you can get easy access into the autopsy rooms and and just watch them do what they do to a, a dead body. Um, now again, what's the purpose of it? You see, the purpose of it is to overcome your fear. And overcome your delusion as to this body being me, this body being mine. Yeah. So uh, that, in a sense, um, tells you how important contemplation of the body is in the Buddhist teaching. And all these exercises that we do around the body are really to see these three characteristics. See, the lack of control, the changing nature, the dependency of the body on everything outside it, the air, the food, huh? uh, minimal control. Okay. And just like when you um, take something away that you're dependent on, there's always that pain of letting go. And then that's the way it is. Okay. So, if uh, if your car breaks down, or if your iPod breaks down, that's worse. Then you've got this you've got this pain of not having uh, not having your iPod. See, but then if you can't buy one, and if you can't get one, there's a slow acceptance of that situation, and the pain disappears, the suffering disappears. Okay. So it's slowly just letting go of things, sort of, un sort of letting go letting go when you're in meditation and there's and you can see a lot of suffering around of um, um, various things that happen in your life you see as that comes up you see, see if you just keep saying let go let go see? so you've got to be careful with that little phrase though you're not supposed to push things out see so let go so get, <laughs> so get away give it a little flip 
because that would be an aggression. Letting go just means let it arise and pass away. Let it arise and pass away. See? And when all these things uh, arise and pass away, it's not as though anything is destroyed. That's the, uh, that's the joy of the process. Everything is given back, but renewed. Everything is given back um, in, its, in its non-attached form. So when the Buddha, for instance, went uh, to do this practice, um, he would have had to let go of thinking. So one of our big problems is to let go, is to stop thinking. And you would think, well, when he's fully liberated, he, that would be it. He'd just sit there like a, an amorphous blob with a sign. I am liberated, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> but the very quality of discussion, the very quality of, um, of being able to uh, argue a point uh, is now re-established, only this time to express his own understanding. So it's the same with emotions. Uh, by letting go of these unfortunate emotions, you see, uh, they're transformed. Nothing is lost in that process. So what was grief becomes joy. Uh, what was uh, hatred and anger, unforgivingness, all that sort of stuff, becomes love. You can't stop that transformation, it happens naturally. I mean, we do these exercises to push that process along. But in Zen, they, t they tell you that um, with wisdom, compassion arises naturally. It just arises naturally. There used to be a very, a fairly low, I mean, uh, famous in England anyway, teacher in, in, um, in Zen in London, Yoki Oni. And she was quite a fierce uh, person, it seems. I never met her. Uh, died quite a while ago now. And she said doing loving kindness meditation was a waste of time. <laughs> that was very... That was peculiarly Zen, you know, Japanese. <laughs> so, <laughs> get down to the nitty gritty. Stop wasting your time with all this lovely, lovely stuff. Very good. So, I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated through your uh, investigation of the body sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.